I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. I have no other way to introduce this episode except by just saying the name, Anna Kowalski. For those of you who know Anna, right now you are beaming with joy. For those of you who don't know Anna, I think you are gonna be smiling from ear to ear by the end of this episode. Anna is a very dear friend of mine and an incredible colleague. And what I have to say is one of the best family therapists I have ever sat with. Anna focuses on the work between families and eating disorders, and it is really powerful. We do not expect at the end of each session for things to be tied up in a nice, neat little bow. Family work is very hard it is complicated, it is painful, it is joyful, it is enlightening, it is powerful, it is sad. I could go on with the descriptors. Anna actually sums it up perfectly. In the episode, she says, for her, one family therapy session could be equivalent to 500 individual sessions with a client. It is healing for the client. It is healing for the family. It is a really, really very necessary part of the process for healing. Can I say the word healing one more time? This is an important episode for clients, for their loved ones, for professionals in the field to understand how deep family therapy needs to go. We also came up with something new and we're introducing it here in this episode and I owe Anna. So Anna said she had so much fun, she wants to come back. She said, what about a question and answer? And I said, Anna Kowalski, you got it. So we are asking listeners, if you want to submit a question, look for the link at the bottom of the episode page or email me directly My email address is karen at karenlewisedc.com. Email me questions. Anna's going to come back in a little while, and we're going to do a whole question and answer episode. All right, everyone. This is a fun one. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I don't know about you guys, but I know that I am in for an incredible treat this week. My very dear friend and colleague, Anna Kowalski, is our guest for this week's episode. Anna, welcome to the podcast. 
Karen. It is absolutely a joy to be here. I am excited and a little smidgy smidge nervous, I won't lie. It's always so interesting to be in a situation where you're talking um, and you don't know who your audience really is. And so I'm really excited and mostly just to be able to have this conversation with you um, because I feel so close and so much uh, love and acceptance uh, around you. So that I will say is, is the best part of it. Um, and hi, everybody. I'm Anna, and uh, I've been in a fantastic, loving friendship with Karen Lewis for many years, which started uh, back in the day in Montanito, and where I grew up in the eating disorder community, uh, starting as an intern. And interesting enough, uh, uh, being on this podcast is a real honor because I'm not a recovered person. I came to the field from a different angle, and um, and grew up in the Montanito community for uh, the better part of 20 years uh, and have now branched out into my private practice in Agora Hills, California, where I see lots of eating disorder clients and families and uh, run some groups and uh, doing all the things that I enjoy in that arena. Um, and while I do mostly individual uh, therapy now in my private practice. I still bring in the families as much as I can, um, as I think it's the greatest support for recovery. But in my uh, earlier years at Montanito, I was uh, a little bit terrified of doing family work. In fact, I wouldn't work a Saturday because that's when family group was um, until I started sitting in a little bit and seeing what was happening. Uh, and now I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, I think it's integral, um, imperative, and many other words uh, that uh, mean important uh, to somebody's recovery. Yeah. Anna, I cannot tell you how happy I am to have you on the podcast. As you were saying, so as Anna just said, and you all know that every once in a while I venture out and have people on that are not recovered. Anna is not the first, but there's reasons because there are people in the field that have really good information to share. There are some people, by the way, I've sat with a lot of family therapists. I've sat with a lot of therapists that are phenomenal, hands down. Anna, there's something a little special about you, though, and the way you work with families, which is why, even though you're not recovered, you're still a guest on the podcast. In fact, something that I want to share with everybody is that I often say, I've sat and worked with clinicians who have never had an eating disorder before, and hands down, they are the best eating disorder therapists I've sat with. Anna. I'm talking about you. I reference you every week because you are phenomenal. So we think family is incredibly important. I know for my own situation, my family was part of my eating disorder and my family was a huge part of my recovery. I love my family so much. So it gets complicated, right, Anna? I know, you and I know, that when it comes to the family work, families are petrified to come in for treatment, 
parents are petrified that they're going to be blamed. Children, and I'm using the word children, but as client, and by the way, I'm 50 and I'm still my mother's child. Children are frightened to say things in their family system. So that's why this podcast is so important. Anna, I don't even know where to begin. I just want to say, or I want to ask, what was it that shifted you that suddenly you were like, wow, this is integral work? Because I think that's what people need to hear. Why is family work so important? So I want to start with with one piece. Um, and I want to say there were two parts. One was my fear of doing family therapy. But the other is, and, and this is my own bias, was the most important thing in my life was, is now, and also we are both 50 at the same time, Karen, is my family. And so knowing that for me, no matter what was going on in my life, that that was an integral part, it was part of my bias um, in regards to that, that family was the important part. But I also have to remember for a lot of people, family was really difficult. And so I came into it very rosy about everybody's family and then quickly realized that some people had a more difficult time. That didn't mean the family was bad or wrong it meant I, what I came to know was that there was a big disruption and that the system had failed in some way or gone awry. And that if we could work together with that, the, the healing was just so much greater and, um, and, and so much more uh, robust in terms of what happened with somebody's eating disorder. Because generally what we were looking at was this person who had gone and, and, and taken their eating disorder and gone everything internal. And then there was just this fight. And the fight was between the family and the eating disorder, still really loving and wanting to save this human's life. And the clients would come in and be so angry with the family. And my concern was that they would lose that, that foundational support. And so if we could easier, much easier in a treatment setting, because you have everybody's attention. Uh, when everybody's out running around, it's more difficult. But when we had everybody's attention and the family would come in uh, and they would know that there wasn't blame. And when they would know that they were part of the solution, yes, part of the problem. Yes, there was things that were said. Yes, there were uh, issues that happened in the family. Yes, there was Weight Watchers. Yes, there was fat talk. Yes, there was everything that ever happened. But that also with the education that they were getting, the client, when they came in 24 hours a day of abstinence and education, the family weren't getting that. It was the importance of the families coming and learning how to also speak and do what they needed to do to help their loved one get better because they were part of the problem, but not the blame. Right. That's, you just hit on something very important, which is clients are constantly doing work on themselves, whether they're in residential treatment, different levels of care, outpatient. And every once in a while we say, let's bring the family in. The family has not learned the language that not only just when you're talking to somebody about an eating disorder, but also talking about emotions, authenticity, vulnerability. 
the family hasn't done that yet. And so that often does create this incredible tension. The client often feeling like, why don't they see the work that I've done? The family saying, I don't understand. Like it is just explosive, explosive. How do you navigate when it comes to, say, a situation like that where a family comes in, they don't have much education? And by the way, if you have not had an eating disorder, you're not going to understand what the function of your child or spouse's or sibling's eating disorder is. Where do you begin? So... Again, you know, I, I'm going to speak from a, a treatment center kind of um, dynamic because I think that's where the bulk of my work has been done with families because you get the time, um, and the, and everybody's bought into that um, to that space. So once you can get them there and get them involved, um, it's so fantastic. The volatility of a family, and again, you're working with uh, families who are so afraid of being blamed. So volatile families coming in, one of the things I think that is the most important, no matter what you're doing, is joining, joining, right? So we join with the client, you've got to join with the family. You've got that strong, silent, uh, pull your uh, pull yourself up from your bootstraps dad, and you've got this um, very uh, maybe meek mom who wants to, is enabling. And so it's just that conversation. And, and sometimes I use, you again, whatever analogy you're using, I talk about the dance. I talk about how this ser- is serving everybody, how, you know, what are everybody's roles and how, and, and, and people start to listen. And like, I never thought of it that way. As soon as you start hearing, wow, that makes sense. I never thought of it that way. And you've got this little in. And then you invite them to be a part of this process as opposed to you're the problem. That's what so many parents told me over the years. I've never felt like I was a part of the solution. I've just been blamed. As soon as the parents are blamed, you've lost that level of support for the client. You've also lost trust with the therapist, meaning the the family members are not going to trust the therapist. Two things that I was thinking of, and forgive me, everyone, I've probably said both of these scenarios before, but two things. One, the day I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, I swear to you, the doctor opened up the door and my parents were in the waiting room with like their heads down, like as if the principal was just coming out to be like, you're in trouble. My parents were horrified. They were mortified. They were, they were devastated on so many levels. Actually, there's a lot of things I want to say. I'm like, I have two things to say. The other thing that is so, or, or something that I always found so powerful about you is, first of all, your authenticity with families, with, with all clients, your authenticity, and you're not afraid to say anything. And that's really important because they are afraid, whether it's the client or the parents or the siblings. And some things just have to be brought out. It's not what's being said. How do we navigate through this now? And what my parents didn't get, because again, it was 30 years ago. I don't know where they found this support group. And I might get a lot of flack for this. So I'm going to take a deep breath. 
they found a support group and my parents went in and here's their child who is basically starving herself to death. My parents who loved me, love me more than anything in the world. My mom was so scared. Her way of talking about it was saying, sometimes I just want to grab Karen and shake her. Now, what I might get flack about is as a clinical director, because you and I, Anna, have been in the residential field for many, many years. I loved every client that walked through the door, but sometimes metaphorically, I just wanted to shake them. That didn't mean I really wanted to hurt them. And, and again, I want to be very forgiving if I'm, if I'm saying anything that's triggering. But unfortunately, a woman snapped at my mother and said, how dare you that you would ever want to hurt your child? My parents were devastated because that was the antithesis of what my mother was saying. But unfortunately, Anna, the therapist was not trained, was not seasoned, and the therapist said nothing and let my parents sit there in even more shame than when they walked in through the door. I know you, Anna Kowalski, you would have let that conversation go in a really rich way so everybody felt heard. And that's why, I don't even know what my point is. It was just such a powerful experience that this is why family therapy is so important. And this is why the work that you do is so powerful. I don't know if you have anything to say to that or if I'm just, you know, talking because I like to talk. (laughs) Well, that's something we both have in common, my love. So don't ever, you don't ever have to worry about that. My greatest goal is to get as many support people there are in the world for this client. And, And I, and I describe it as circles a lot, you know, the clients in the middle, and then we have a therapist and a dietitian and a a doctor and maybe a psychiatrist as the team. And my thing has always been, that's, completely that's ineffective because that is it's too small it's not enough and what we need is we need to create a team that is everybody that is that client's dog or support animal that's their rabbi their priest it is their school teacher it is their principal um, but most importantly it is their family And that's either their biological family or their chosen family. Because I think chosen family is huge too. I want to get the... I want to get the the uh, roommates from college involved. I want to get the boyfriend or the girlfriend involved. I want to get the whoever has that person's ear. I want to be involved. And the parents, big population that's underserved in terms of family therapy are the siblings. They're the closest you can get to that person with people who tell them the truth, right? Your sibling always really tells you the truth, even if it hurts, right? So if we can start engaging when it starts in the family, because I think that's where it feels like there's the most support. So the soon as you do join with them and connect with them, like I'm very close to, 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 to Karen. So I know she's talking about Sylvia and I don't know if you talk about Sylvia in name here, but, but for anybody to have been to have hurt Sylvia like right now I want to go back and punch that therapist in the face and I hope that doesn't offend anybody I'm not really going to do it and if this, that therapist is listening I hope that 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 you're you you're doing things differently but the reality of it is is that nobody is to blame and as soon as you blame the parents you give that that client more ammunition 
You join against who is their greatest potential for support. And the bottom line is if they aren't the greatest potential for support, then let's talk about that. I had the greatest dad one time in a group and he was sitting there. I, I have two quick stories. I love telling stories and, and we're on here. So I had this one dad, he was in group and the daughter was saying, dad, you, you just, you just don't understand me. You don't listen to me. And he said, he said, honey, you've got to go to your mom for that. He said, coming to me for your emotional support is like going to Home Depot for lettuce. I just don't have it. It's just not here. And I'm sorry, I can do a lot of other things, but I just can't do that. And it's so true. We keep going back to this dry well, whether it's because we're trying to get something out of somebody we don't, or you're trying not to get it so that you can have your eating disorder, right? So there's different ways you use family members. Another mom who got a client all the way through treatment, she was eating her food, she's about to discharge, parents come for a group. Daughter says, all I need, mom, is for you to get up and have breakfast with me every single day. If you can eat my breakfast and anchor me in my breakfast, I can eat the rest of my food. And the mom sat there for a second and she said, no, I can't. And I swear to you, crickets, everybody want to beat the mom because how could the mom say no? And I said, instead of berating her, which is immediately my initial thing. I said, can you explain a little bit more about that? And she said, I've been eating my breakfast with you for years. And I now eat my breakfast with people at work. And it's the way I start my day. And I don't want to give it up. And you know what? That was brave. And it was honest. And that's what I asked people to be. And at that point, I looked over at dad. I said, could you take breakfast? He said, I'll take it. And I said, okay. But without that conversation, it was just anger. And at that point in time, we created a different interaction that always, it was just through talking, right? Um, but if we had stopped at mom isn't going to have the breakfast, we would have missed some beautiful truths. And do you realize, and I think you, you said this, do you realize how brave that mom was to say, and and that's not mom saying, nope, you're on your own, kiddo. That's mom saying, I've done it for years. It I, It is too, like, this is mom saying, this is mom showing healthy boundaries. This is mom modeling. I have to say when something is too much for me and however you respond to it, that's your, that's your thing. Hopefully your therapist will help you to respond to that. And Anna, you did beautifully. You just created another. That's the other thing I say to parents all the time. You cannot stop your world entirely to help your child or your sibling or whatnot for the eating disorder. It is important for you to be there. It is important for you to educate yourself. It's important for you to listen, pay but you, if if that woman's breakfast with her friends at work was her sacred way of starting the day, then that mom was holding on to that. Wow, Anna, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. She was modeling for her daughter who probably never had her, never did anything for herself. It was so powerful that, I mean, again, this is years ago and it's one of, it's, you know, I have, I have sound bites in my head of what I remember and what was powerful and reminding myself to continue to be curious constantly with the clients and with their family members about what are they actually saying? You know, it's really difficult too, when you have a mom who her real reality is that she has 
maybe what we would call disordered eating. Maybe she comes from diet culture. Maybe this is where she's at in her life and she's not willing to change and navigating those uh, lanes of recovery and how your client still has to sit down. And if they're still living with these people and they're the supports um, still has to navigate that mom doesn't have to change the way she eats. I wish she would. Don't get me wrong. I don't think anything that she's doing is helpful for her. Uh, but it's also not helpful for her daughter or her son or whoever is in the mix here um, to uh, it's not helpful for her to eat and get the food support from that mom. And so but just having the conversation um, is so, so important because we also I've, I, I talked to families about how the eating disorder. And again, we're, we, we, we're all on the same page here. It's not just the clients. It's the families, right? The family is either held hostage or maybe enabling or however everybody's entwined. We have to kind of look at that. And the reality of it is, is that that piece about everybody getting their needs met. So this mom, finally, after coming, after hearing, you have to take care of yourself, after hearing that if all of your energy gets put into this eating disorder, that's a lot of power this eating disorder has. Um, and so how do you want to re, re distribute that power through everybody and distribute where it is? Now, I want to say something because I know this is some of the time where I get in trouble and I want to be very mindful and thoughtful about my philosophical orientation and who I work with. Because if we're talking about FBT, it is a lot of uh, everybody giving up their needs in order to uh, help and support the food and the intake. Um, and again, that's not my expertise and I'm not going to describe that. And I hope that you do have um, at some point an FBT practitioner uh, or we can give links to that or something. Uh, that's just not where I come from. And a lot of times because I worked mostly with adult uh, women who that wasn't uh, um, it's not appropriate. It was um, what's the word? Uh, the efficacy, I guess, uh, of FBT is is lower in in age, uh, and so again, I don't want to speak on a topic that I'm not super versed in, but it's different, and so I think there are some places where um, this was very very new to the people that I was working with because maybe they had tried FBT and they had been asked to be very involved. And then I was asking them to give space and to take care of themselves. And so, so there's some mixed messages that yeah. happen. And just so listeners know, FBT is family-based therapy. And so there are so many different models that, that people, and by the way, families are desperate and they will try a number of approaches. If one approach doesn't work, they'll cling on to another one. By the way, they should. It is, it is, this is not easy to work through. And so parents and siblings are always trying to figure out what is the, it's almost like the, what's the one miracle thing in the eating disorder that's going to make everything okay. Sometimes people are like, what's the one miracle treatment? There's not. It's time. It's healing. It's nourishment, it's, you know, reduction of behaviors. Like it's just, it's crying, it's anger. There's a, sometimes a lot of anger that needs to come out. I want to ask you a question though. And this may 
sound provocative. I, I, I know how I would navigate through it, but I'm also wondering, I'm imagining the client right now or clients that are listening to this podcast and saying, oh no, my family 100% was the cause of my eating disorder. Now, you and I know nothing is 100% a cause, but when we're talking about sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, we can't just say, nope, family's not to blame, but how do you help a family system heal when there has been trauma? Because to say, oh, no, 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 that sexual abuse that dad did, not his fault. I'm sorry, that behavior definitely contributed. How do you work with that, Anna? Gosh, this is this is. Oh. First of all, the 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 it, it all there's just it's heartbreak. I mean, that's the first thing I want to say for anybody who's hearing that story, and for anybody who's gone through it. It's heartbreak. It's anger. It's sadness. It's it's hatred. It's it's and it and it's also love. I mean, everything kind of pushed into one. Um, and so I want to make sure when I hear that that I automatically don't go to that align against that person or because I know that even though something maybe has been done that has been egregious to that client, I want to validate it, but I don't want to join with them there against it because I want to, where's, is there, is there a potential for healing? Um, the reason I don't want to blame is because as soon as blame is attached, then it's, it's much harder to heal. I feel like if that's the problem, right? So yes, did that contribute? 100%. It, is that the, a, a major contributor? And maybe had that not happened, would there not need this maladaptive coping? Yes. But now if we continue to stay there and blame, there's no, I, the healing process is so much harder. So I think if we go to forgiveness, if we go to, and I, I don't mean in the first session, right? I mean, working through all the anger and writing the journal entries and writing the letters that you never send and having the conversations that are difficult and on and on and on. And then what is the relationship that you do or don't want to have? And if you don't want to have it, the relationship, I mean, then doing that in a way that healthy, that's such a weird word, that is does less harm to the client, maybe. Yes, yes. Teaching that person, because the hatred of the of the human exacerbates the behaviors, right? So if we can get to that place eventually, um, I think that's where the real healing can happen. So, uh, and also in 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 situations of abuse, uh, I don't jump straight to um, what what was that person's history, you know, that I think can come later and this this not wanting to perpetuate the cycle. And there's so many pieces. And the other thing at this point is uh, oftentimes where I'll go is, whoa, so the eating disorder saved your life. And so this has been a maladaptive coping, but that actually saved your life. And so how can we honor your eating disorder and reintegrate it back into this savior piece that did help you into your healthy self so that you can have that strength, but that it's pushed into, a, a, into uh, doing things that serve you rather than hurt you. I think that's the key part. And this, this might be difficult for family members to hear. It's not always about 
healing the family system and bringing everybody back together in a kumbaya, it might be this family system. There's, there is too much trauma. We, we actually need to separate each of you and recognize that this work is going to take years. And how do we do it again in a way to not further hurt the client, to not keep fueling the, fanning the flame? Come on, work with me here, people. Fueling the fame. <laughs> By the way, Jen will not edit this out because we think it's funny. I never get sayings right. I hope they don't edit it out because it's one of my favorite things about you, Karen Lewis, is the way you miss miss um speak sayings it's just it's the best ever it's who i am fanning the flame that's it so there is that reality that sometimes family therapy is to say this isn't going to work or at least for now but we need to do it in a way that honors the person who's suffering there's so many different dynamics of family therapy which is why it is always so much fun. Uh, you look like you were going to say something. Well, I was just going to say, I think that's why I say, I often say to people or when I, if I, if I was doing a, a talk at a conference or, and probably this might also make people uh, mad, but I, I think one family session is worth like 500 individuals. Because what happens in each each individual session, you're talking about the family, you're talking about the mom, you're talking about the dad, and nobody else has a voice, right? So I'm only getting this one perspective. As soon as I bring that family in, oh my God, where does everybody sit? Mom sits with daughter and, and, and they're together and dad's on the side. I want to, I want to align mom and dad together and move, move people around. I want to see who sticks up for who, who interrupts who, who soothes who. The experience is so rich and dynamic and telling. Sometimes when you, you could have been working with somebody for six months and had you brought that family in one, month one to kind of see what was happening, it can change your whole trajectory in terms of what you're working on, save time, and also um, just allow so much more information into the mix. So I'm a big one for, for even if you are working individually with a client um, and they have their own family therapist or however the, the, the setup is, bring that family in so that you can get everybody's kind of take on what's happening. Also, you get a lot more information around what's happening with behaviors, if they live together, even if they don't live together uh, and what, and what's going on. So I like it because it's greater than any intake. I also think what clinicians get when they do family sessions is there's often misperceptions. And by the way, it's not saying to the client, like, you're wrong. Wait a minute. Did you hear what your mom said? But it's suddenly me saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. This sounds like something that we talked about from when you were... 10 years old. I'm just throwing that number out. And I hear it differently from your mom, yet you've always been saying it to me in this tone. I don't hear that tone. And then I ask for an explanation and I say, mom, are you taking it down a notch because we're in family therapy? Or son, have you been hearing it through that, 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 that way your entire life, because sometimes we get stuck. And son, which suddenly I don't know why I'm calling clients 
and parents, son and mom, but say the client says, yes, she always talks to me like that. And then I can say, wait a minute, I didn't hear it the same way. What exactly are you hearing? That's another thing because we all have misperceptions. We all have narratives from our childhood, especially when we're around our parents. Again, regardless of the age, my mother can say something to me today and I swear to you, my inner 12-year-old just wants to throw a fit. So because that's even how I'm hearing it from when I was 12 years old. It's not the reality. A hundred percent. I think perception, uh, 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 such a beautiful point about bringing everybody in. The, 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 I love the perception between siblings uh, because it's about temperament too, right? So you, when you, you know, how do two siblings and twins have eating disorders or, you know, and again, we're not talking about genetics because I'm not well-versed in that either, but it's so interesting to get two siblings in the room and one sees the mom as critical and uh, mean and the other one sees them so so differently. And when you, when you get them talking about it, it's true. Their experiences are very true. They're just very different. Um, and how they experience it. Another story, because this was a perception where it was true, where we had a client and this was again, again, in a group setting. And she kept warning me about her dad coming in. The clients will always warn me, would always warn me, well, you got to be careful about, you know, don't say this in front of my person or don't do this. Or we were in a group setting and she was talking about her dad was very, very, um, what's the word? Um, you might say, uh, you might say misogynistic. You might use that word to describe this man. And I said, come on, you know, he's a dad. And, you know, so we're in the group and there's probably about 50 people in the group. And, um, we're talking about body image and, and all the things that come up in, in terms of clients telling their parents truths. And I was sitting next to the dad and he said, uh, come on, Anna, we all know all, all a guy wants is a tall, skinny blonde. Let's just be honest. Okay. I see you guys can't see Karen, but her chest is puffing up and I'm sitting next to him. And, and this was, he said it, this wasn't in jest. This wasn't sarcastic. This was a very, when you're saying I didn't hear it that way. Oh, I heard it that way. This was, and I had already believed that this was a client was misinterpreting the father. So what I did was I sat there for a second and said a bunch of, Oh shits in my head. And then I said very calmly, uh, well, actually, I got up and I stood in front of him. And I said, please put my hands up. And I said, please don't everybody, don't everybody kill him right now. Because that was, that was very, very, very direct. I said, but what I want you to, to think about is this is where we need to educate. This is, this is stereotypes. And I said, and I also want to say to every client who's sitting here in this room, which were clients and alumni, there isn't one of you sitting here who hasn't and doesn't think about that in your own head. And so let's talk about it. Let's talk about, is that true? Let's talk about that is not true. And let's talk about how that hurts people. And let's have a conversation. I sat back down. I wanted to manip I want more than shake this father. Okay. Because I also understood now more the dynamic that this person was in but the reality of it is, even if I'd gone after him in that moment, all that would have done would have been to continue to hurt the daughter. 
because we needed to have this conversation. He needed to hear from this group of women and fathers and siblings and mothers and everybody who was in that room, what was happening for her. Um, she got support in that instance from her, from her peers. Uh, they understood what her, what her situation, her struggle was. So everybody got something from that group that could have been a complete and utter train wreck. But we taught, we taught from it. That's the beauty. This is why groups are so powerful. This is why I miss working in treatment centers. This is why I miss my own groups that I run, but because of COVID, it's not happening right there. And by the way, and I'm just going to, I am going to toot your horn, Anna. That's a seasoned therapist, as opposed to what happened to my parents, where just let that horrible, that comment just fall horribly in the pit of my parents' stomach. A seasoned therapist is going to say, hang on. First of all, good for you for saying you can't say that you all haven't thought that. So bringing it into the into real reality. And now what? What are some thoughts and feelings? You, you just like you said, you educated that father, got support around that daughter. That's the difference. If you go after that father in that moment, you lose him. First of all, you lose him. You potentially lose all of the financial resources for therapy if he now feels attacked by therapy. And this daughter still lives with this father. It would not, it's not ending that. That just creates a drama in this room. It doesn't help that family system. I don't care what any family member says, we gotta work through it. Because to just blame it away, it still exists. The other powerful thing about family work, and I'm going to keep using this situation because it's so powerful, is opening the opportunity to, as we were saying, educate this person, let him, you know, understand what he said, how it harms, blah, blah, blah. And understanding that he may still not think any differently even after all of that. So then the next part of family therapy is how do you help that daughter grieve that her father is one of the people that she is afraid of judgment on her body. Her father perpetuates this stereotype. Wow. How do you help that daughter grieve that she is not going to have the relationship with her father that she wants? That is the work that starts to happen. That absolutely is work is, is, is basically in, he's just the hyper extension of the dad who said you can't get lettuce from the, from Home Depot. Cause there's so many um, gradations of how somebody can be in your life. And at some point we do talk about um, the, the, again, the knowing what you can and can get from this person. Now here's where, here's where things start to get difficult, right? Dad pays for therapy. Dad pays for her life. Dad pays for all of these things that she has. This is a weird, 
then there's weird dynamics of, of, of how do you survive? Now you, she can go live uh, on her own and get a job and make all these choices. And if she doesn't, and she wants to live here, I mean, these are very, very intricate uh, decisions and how you stay in relationship with potentially somebody who's almost like, isn't it, is it, is an emotional abuser. Um, and so how do you have these stronger boundaries and how do you, uh, do you, and can you accept your father for who he is and have a relationship with him or not? These are all great questions. I don't have the answer, but these are the things we have to work through. That's it. That's exactly it. And I think that's, that's, What's the pivotal part about family therapy is it is not fun. It is not pretty. It's often messy, but put it out there. It's there. Whether we talk about it or not, it's happening. But if you don't talk about it, it's going to keep happening in the client's body with the eating disorder. It's going to keep happening with the sibling who's doing drugs. It's going to keep. So if it's there, talk about it. And as you and I have both experienced quite often, there is a beautiful, there can be a beautiful rebirth of a new family system. It, the, the rebirths are what keep you going. The rebirths are just, it's life-giving, right? It's life-giving for everybody. And um Gosh, the, the, the amount of the, the, the amount of rebirths. So a one rebirth, I just have to say a story of a family uh, that was very polarized due to religion and um, and difficulties with uh, separation and individuation in regards to religion. The eating sort of very based in that the the client was was trying to get out of the religious community that she was in. And so the parents came and one of the things that we decided to do because she didn't have any real relationship with her parent except for through the religiosity. So we did, we did an experiment and we created a, an interview for her father uh, who was, uh, who was also, he was a rabbi and we created an interview for her father. And in the interview, uh, question, we, we wrote out a bunch of questions, personal questions. She didn't know the answers to. And he came to visit and he came for a session. And we asked if he'd participate in the interview just with her alone. And they went out to the backyard. Oh, can't see me, but it makes me cry every time I talk about it. They went out to the backyard to do the interview. And she asked him many questions. And then she asked him, she asked him, what's one of the greatest regrets of your life? And he said that I've never had this interview, that I didn't have this interview earlier. And I want to say she didn't go back into his religion. She didn't. She separated from it. She's recovered today and they have a fantastic relationship. It's not daily. It's not every minute but he supports her in her decisions that he doesn't agree with, but he loves her. That's also, and forgive me, I know I'm interrupting. That's also what happens when you separate the eating disorder from the people underneath. So at that moment, that daughter and that father sat there in all of their vulnerability. It wasn't talk about how much longer are you gonna be in treatment for? 
dad, please don't say this when we're eating at the table. It wasn't any of that. It stripped away everything except for the innocence of that relationship and then created something different. And by the way, they don't always turn out this way, Anna. I was just going to say, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say, hey, I'm telling you, those are the rebirths, right? I've had plenty of uh, the opposite. And I don't want to call them deaths of relationship, but I want to call them, you know, kind of um, maybe they're mutually consensual uh, separation of a relationship or not a pulling away. But the rebirths are what give you, like when you say, why do I want to work with families? Because of that. Because of the, it just, it just invigorates you when you, when you hear something like that. And it, they're, they're the, they're the things that are kind of embedded in my head of the hopefulness, right? I'm, I practice positive psychology, of course, that now had she come back and said, well, that was a complete waste of time. He gave me yes or no answers. He thought the questions were terrible and he wants to talk about religion. Um, at that point, we reroute. There's no, there's no stopping point. There's only a rerouting. I was just going to say, that's not a waste of time. That's more information that we have now. Now we know your father is not able to go to that vulnerability. Your dad or whoever it is, is not able to support anything because of what his worldviews. Now we, nothing is ever for naught. And that's what I say all the time to clients. Everything is really valuable information and what we can use to shift, alter, whatever it is that we need to do. Family group, when I used to run it, was was seriously my most favorite group. There is something about, there's also something about, and I know we're talking about family work, but there's something about families, a group of families joining together that you see all different kinds of personality traits. Also, loved ones who are the clients, they're in all different paths in their journey. And you see all these families get together and either be vulnerable or you see them shut down. So again, you see everything that's happening and it just becomes a combination of sometimes explosive, mostly though, at some point, no matter what that turn is, they're still healing. It, it's, it's so, um, again, you go into every situation not knowing, right? And that's just the truth all over the place. Uh, but I think as long as you stay present, you stay curious, uh, you stay open, the, Again, you're so right. There's never, you, you, you don't get to an end point. You just get to a place where you make another turn. And I think it, it's, it's helpful also. Uh, one of the things that, that I just want to say really quickly, many, many people have supportive families that actually aren't supportive, right? They're super enabling. Many people have families that are what you would consider not supportive and clients who will come in and say, uh, my family's so mean and they're so hard on me and they're so this and they're so that. And, also remember families are afraid they're gonna their their person's going to die 
So you can get really clamped down on somebody who, when you're afraid and the only thing you have is your power over them. And then the power differential gets really out of whack. Um, and, and then we're talking about this, this, this client is, is in her thirties and they're still clamped down. And so how do you undo that and create again, just a flex, more flexible system? Um, I, I think I went, maybe went a little bit off topic on that. I'm not sure what the initial question was, but it's just something that came to my head. The other thing I want to say is, because I think, again, back to my bias from the beginning, and I know we're coming closer to the end, that we always have to check our own bias in the, in the room and make sure that we're not aligning with somebody or not listening and, and that we're being open to the, poss the, the, the possibilities that are there. I have to remember my story isn't their story and that, you know, family is, is sometimes different. Um, and, and also I have to remember that a lot of the people that I've seen have had a ton of resources to get this care, that they have a ton of uh, availability to have this level of care and that in a time of social justice and, and what we've had, um, I've seen a lot of, I haven't seen a lot of diversity. And I wanna say that out loud because I think it's important. And I think we need to remember when we're working with different families from different cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, religious backgrounds, I brought that up. We have to be very sensitive to what that is. And I like to use, I, I grew up in school talking about cultural competence, but I like to use the word cultural humility and I don't exactly know where I first found it, but I try to stay humble because I wanna go back to that religious family that I was talking about. I did not know a ton about the Jewish faith. Uh, and I made a bunch of blunders. I ran in for a hug with the rabbi and uh, I got uh, his wife and his daughter jumped in between us because you're not allowed to actually touch a rabbi. And then I went into the room and I said, I apologize to you for not knowing uh, your culture and that, that that was not okay. That's how I show um my my joy and my happiness in 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 knowing you and he said he he gave he he he, he forgave me uh and i said to him what should i call you uh and i thought i was talking about rabbi or his name and he said to me you can just call me dad and in that moment again i'm learning so i think i want to say that in, in in almost in a closing is that I, I love family therapy. I believe I'm good at family therapy, but I'm still learning from every family. Absolutely. And even though we're closing, and I feel like this is sort of like another doorknob moment where we could go off on a whole nother direction, but speaking of this example is understanding the different generations of the families understanding what food was like in different generations of the family, understanding what roles were like in the family. Like, there are so many different factors that we always have to be open to, always. And it is, and again, just like you said, Anna, always learning always learning, never looking at a family, making an assumption, saying they're, you know, they come from this job or this socioeconomic. Things are multi-generational. Things are spiritual, religious, 
all of these things cannot take not take that into consideration. Absolutely. You absolutely have to, uh, as soon as somebody walks in, it's, it's, I'm, I'm just curious. I start out just being curious. Even if I know the whole story from the client, I'm just going to be curious. And I mean, curious for a long time, but knowing that I'm learning this family, there is no such thing as an eating disorder, treating an eating disorder. It's treating that person's eating disorder. And with that, it's treating that family's relationship to it. Oh, Anna, I love you so much. I love you too, Kate. I know, I know we're on a podcast right now and I'm just sort of gushing over you, but I just, I love the work that you and I have done and, and you and I have worked together for years and it has just been amazing. Before I end, I have a final question for you, but before we get to that, is there anything that you want to say that I didn't ask that you just thought you needed to add, or are you just ready for your final question? You know, it's so interesting, Karen. I, I mean, I, like when we started and I'm like, oh, we're going to talk for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. I mean, I could talk for 10 years and, and then tell a billion stories and I know I'm going to get off and think, oh my gosh, you know, there's this idea and when we're talking is it's not linear. It's not, we're not talking about the process of family. We're not talking about family. We're just throwing out lots of these concepts and gems and things like that. So um, yes, I wish, I, w- I just wish there was more time and maybe one day we can do a question and answer. I have so many ideas, um, but I just want to say, I just appreciate you having this forum. I'm excited. This is the first podcast I ever did. And I, I really enjoyed it and having you uh, be the one who was there made it that much better because I got to not be so scared. I love you so much. So listeners don't know, but Anna said to me a few weeks ago, I'm petrified. I don't know if I can do this. And now Anna, you're like, okay, so we're going to do another one. We're going to do a question and answer and da, 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 da. Yeah. Love it. Welcome to life. That's what I wanted to say. You're going to come back then. I would love to do a question and answer. All right, everybody think about that. Anna and I are going to do a question and answer about family work. So keep that in your, in the forefront of your mind and I'll try to figure out how to navigate this. So Anna, before we end though, I do have to ask a very, very important question. If someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? So I think it, it, I think it would say you mentioned a word, and it was something it something that I take as the greatest compliment. Um, but I think it would say for a direct and authentic good time, call Anna. <laughs> something to that effect. And I hope that's true because I I do think it's one of the things that for me, um, being myself, whether I'm with you or with a client or with Obama, I want to be authentically me. And, and that's my, that's my greatest, I think, superpower. If I could have one would be authenticity. And I appreciate you mentioned it. And, uh, and I hope that that's true. It is true. It is your superpower, your authenticity. It's beautiful. Anna Kowalski, again, thank you so, so much for being here. 
All right, everyone. That's a wrap for another edition of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I will look forward to talking with all of you again next week. Okay, take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.